Leviticus chapter 23. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up there. And someone go ahead and turn the lights on in the back. Leviticus 23. And I continue to marvel. You know, we're uh, going through the Bible. So we've done, we've gone all the way around the horn. We've done Genesis through Revelation. Now we're back and we're at Leviticus again. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The next book in the series, the biblical series, is Numbers. Which, you know, if you ask your average pastor, hey, what book would you choose to teach at this time? I'm <laughs> sure Numbers is way up there, you know. It's funny, I was telling Eva this afternoon that uh, if, if left to me, I'd probably be choosing something else because I'd think I had some wisdom that uh, we needed a certain passage or a certain book or a certain teaching. And the reality is we've needed Leviticus in this season. We have needed this book, and we need numbers. I'm not yet sure why. Now, I love the book of Numbers, great book. And we'll get back into the wilderness. Back, we'll finally depart Mount Sinai and head out into the wilderness with the children of Israel. So there are fascinating things ahead, but um, the Lord knows what he's doing. So, so stick with us. Stick with us. Leviticus chapter 23, we'll pick up in just a moment. I began earlier by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just read you the first verse again from there. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. And I know this because my iPhone tells me so. You know, it goes off, it reminds me, it beeps, it clicks, it, it shudders, and, and I know, oh, something's happening that I need to check in on. Well, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. So that tells us where we're going in chapter 23. Appointed times, moadah in the Hebrew. Jews today will say the moadim. They mean, they refer to the appointed times, the, the set feasts, fixed feasts on the calendar year of Israel. And we're going to go through all of them in this chapter one by one. Preset seasons, festivals, feasts to the Lord. And he calls them, note this, he calls them holy convocations. That's mikra'i kodesh. Holy con convocations or sacred holy occasions. So these are the things that God is saying, keep these appointments. Don't miss these appointments. In fact, three of the seven feasts that we're going to look at were uh, compulsory. Every male in Israel had to go up to Jerusalem for these three feasts every year. So three journeys to Jerusalem once they got into the land to celebrate these feasts every year. And of course, there's reason for that. You know, if you go to one feast, well, the first three in the spring, if you go to one, you're, you're there, you might as well stay for the other two. <laughs> so it works out well. But holy occasions. The Jewish people have a phrase that they use on their holidays. You know, if you, if you hear the word or the phrase happy holidays at Christmas and you don't like that, you want someone to say Merry Christmas, I actually like happy holidays because it's happy holy days. That's where it comes from, the holy days. And so the Jewish people will even today say, Moadim la simcha, which means happy holidays, joyful, glad holidays, Moadim la simcha. 
That's nice to hear, but we're a month into the new year. The holidays are behind us. You know, we've got a ways to go before more holidays approach. In fact, right now we're trudging through a wet and windy northwest winter, general dreariness. And so the holidays are back there. But you know what? In Israel, the holidays are right around the corner. In fact, the spring holidays are coming quickly this month. On the eve of February 25th, should you want to do this, the 14th of Adar on the Hebrew calendar, they celebrate Purim. Purim is a joyful holiday in Israel. They have a great time with Purim. It's, it's also called the Feast of Esther. And on that feast, they remember the story of Esther. In fact, they'll read it in synagogue. And, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, they'll boo and hiss. And they've got noisemakers. It's the craziest time in the synagogue on the Jewish calendar year. And, and it's a playful holiday, Purim. I, I, just, I was thinking about this today. Roni, our, our tour guide. And, and by the way, we're going back to Israel a year from this March, 14th through 28th, 2022. Mark it down, think about it, come with us. But Roni, our tour guide and dear friend, I'll never forget the day he showed up. And we weren't thinking that it was Purim. Now, Purim is always in the late February, early March time frame. Well, when we go there, it's going to be Purim in 2022. So you'll be able to see some of that. But Roni showed up at the bus one morning and none of us had a clue what was going on. We weren't thinking Purim any more than we would have been thinking Halloween at that time. And we're all on the bus and I'm standing outside the bus with Cheryl. We're waiting and here comes Roni. And he has on this huge yellow tie with pink polka dots and these massive glasses. You know those shutter shade glasses? They look like shutters. He had those on. He comes walking up and says, Modim la shimcha. And I'm like, what are you doing? How in the world are we supposed to take you seriously at this part of the tour? And he was dressed for Purim. Well, that's coming, and that's an appointment in Israel. It's a, a holiday, but it's not a divine appointment. In fact, it's among many that are not divine appointments. Hanukkah, that's a, it's a great celebration, but it's not required by the Lord, of the Lord. It's also called the Feast of Dedication. Should they celebrate it? Well, Jesus did. And you can read about that in the Gospel of John. Uh, Shabbat is another one, which is the new year for the trees, which I think that's nice. They should have a new year. That's the last, that was last Saturday or Sunday, Shabbat. There's even Yom HaShoah, if you're aware of that, the Holocaust Memorial Day that comes in April, which is the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. So there are all kinds of holidays. The Jewish people know how to party, enjoy a good celebration. And so they're year-round, but there are only seven that are divine appointments. Seven that the Lord says, these are mine. You need to keep these. They're significant, they're important, and they were ordained by Yahweh before the people even departed from Mount Sinai. This is part of Torah law, the divine appointments of God. Here they are. If you want to mark them down, I'll give them to you right now up front, and then we're going to go back and look at them through the chapter tonight. The first one, in verse 5, it's on Nisan the 14th, which is the first month of the Lord's year. That is the, the religious calendar, and that's Pesach, which is Passover. So Nisan the 14th, verse 5, Pesach, Passover. Nisan the 15th, the very next day, in verse 6, is Chag Hamatzot, which is unleavened bread. So oftentimes, Pesach, they just say Pesach, and they mean Pesach, unleavened bread, and the next feast, because they're all right together there within that 
really within a day of each other at the beginning of that week-long uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's Nisan the 15th, Hag Hamatzot, Unleavened Bread. The third feast on Nisan the 16th, so you got 14, 15, 16, is Reshit. Reshit is the Feast of First Fruits. That would be on Sunday, at least back in AD 32. And then 50 years later, no, 50 days later, 50 years would be too long. 50 days later, chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, on the 6th of Sivan, S-I-V-A-N, is Shavuot. Now, if you're not getting these or you missed one, don't worry about it. We're going to hit them all tonight. Uh, Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks, because it's 50 days later, or uh, it's seven Sabbaths, so it's seven weeks plus one day. They call it the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. Then you swing all the way around to the fall. And the next feast in the line, the fifth one on Tishri the first, is Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah, we've talked about actually many times. It's also called by Jews today Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year, but that's not the original holiday. It was not a New Year celebration. It was Yom Teruah, which is the day of blowing. So if there's a day you're going to blow it, that's the day to do it on Yom Teruah. Then in between Yom Teruah and the next holiday, there are 10 days, Tishri the 1st through the 10th, that if you just want to note this, and I'll mention this again later, the Jews call that Yamim Noraim. Yamim Noraim. It's not a, it's not a holiday per se on the divine calendar, but it's that time in between Yamim Noraim, which means the awesome days or days of awe. The Jews call it that because they come out of Yom Teruah where the trumpet sounds and they have 10 days to be ready for Yom Kippur, the sixth and most holy day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement on Tishri the 10th. And that's down in verse 26. Again, we'll hit all these again. Then after that on Tishri the 15th, five days later, verse 33 talks about Sukkot which is tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible because it details all these feasts. This is where you get it. Now, God will, will deal with each one of these separately in different places and refer to them in different places, but, but here all together, he gives them right in order on the dates they're supposed to happen, what they mean and how you're supposed to go about them. And it's wonderful because the picture we see in here Surprise, surprise, is none other than Jesus, who is all over these feasts. Now, he details all seven feasts, but the Lord begins with another appointment. Before even getting to the first feast, an appointment that he wants his people to keep every single week, so it's differentiated from the other feasts, and it's verse 3, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. We've seen that phrase before, a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath Sabbath, a total Sabbath, a holy convocation, he says. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Shabbat, Sabbath. It transcends all the other seven feasts because it's involved in all the other seven feasts. You don't have one of these feasts without having a special Sabbath within that week. Even if, the, even if the Sabbath itself isn't on the same day, 
When that feast day happens, it is considered a Sabbath, a complete rest, a Shabbat Shabbaton. And what Sabbath does is it transcends all the others because rest defines the feasts of God. Note that. Rest defines the feasts. Oh, they had their activity. They had the things that they were to do. But with every single feast came that all-important day of rest. You don't party with God until you're worn out. You celebrate with the Lord and you find yourself refreshed in sweet rest. A Shabbat, Shabbaton, Sabbath of complete rest. If you skip ahead and look all the way down to verse 37, you see again a distinction that the Lord makes between Shabbat and all the other feasts. He says, these are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day, besides the Shabbats of the Lord, and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings, which you will give to the Lord. So right there, he distinguishes between the Sabbath, which is every week, and the seven feasts, which will take place throughout that calendar year. So it's a separate deal. But as I said, every feast of Israel has a Sabbath. Even if there's a normal Sabbath somewhere within the feast, there is also a special day, a holy convocation of that feast. Like, for example, Reshit, the Feast of First Fruits, if it doesn't land on a Sabbath, you still have a Sabbath that day. Even if the Sabbath was the day before and Reshit is the next day, you have a special Sabbath. And so each one of the feasts are like that, containing that, that concept of, of rest. And you, you know this, I think we forget it sometimes, but these feasts were God's annual reminders and week by week by week, he set an annual reminder that rest can only be found in Mashiach, in Jesus. You know, it is remarkable. You know, we're believers, right? Followers of Jesus, love the Lord. How often do we find ourselves worn out, stressed out, exhausted, anxious, worried, just tired of life and the living, and we forget that in a moment's notice, we can turn to Jesus and know rest and be refreshed and revived only in Jesus. You've heard the story, but let me read this to you again. Matthew chapter 12, verse one, says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. How dare he? And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And I've told you before, that was fast food in the first century. And have restaurants open all over the place, easy to access. So if you were passing through a grain field, as you will see even in the chapter that we're looking at tonight, you could pick a little head of grain and, and pop it in your mouth. That could be nourishment, a snack on the journey. So they're walking along, it's Sabbath, and the disciples are picking the heads of grain to eat it. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to him, that is to Jesus, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You know what's crazy? It wasn't that it was unlawful to pick the head of grain. It was unlawful to take it and, and rub the husk off in your hand so that you could eat the grain. That's work. And it gets really bizarre. With all the Sabbath rules and Sabbath laws, we've talked about those. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did 
when he became hungry, he and his companions. Let's take Israel's great hero, King David. How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, that holy showbread from the, the table of showbread in the holy place. He says it was not lawful for him to eat nor those with him, but for priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? How do they break the Sabbath? They have to keep working. Priests in the temple don't get the day off just because it's Shabbat. They still work the day, but, but they're innocent because they're doing the work of God. Jesus says to them, I love it, he goes, I say to you something greater than the temple is here. And then he says, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And he just declared his disciples innocent as they were walking through the grain field. I love that story. It's a stunning statement that Jesus makes. One greater than the temple is here. Well, there was nothing greater than the temple on earth in Judaism until Messiah arrived. One greater than the temple, and then he says this statement, and you think the temple statement was awesome. Listen to this. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath, that holy day each week. God-ordained. Because God rested on the seventh, and now Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, greater than David, greater than the temple? Yes, our God and our Savior, as Paul calls him, Jesus Christ. And here's how. Now listen, watch this. Here's how. Go back to Leviticus 23, or if you're already there, look at verse 3 again. For six days work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Shabbat of complete rest, a Shabbat Shabbaton. So work must be done. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. How is he Lord of the Sabbath? How is he king over that day of rest? Listen to me. Work here in verse 3. For six days, work may be done is the word in Hebrew, melakah. Melakah. Let me say it one more time. Melakah. Sounds very close to another word that many of you probably know if you stop and think about it. Same root word as another word. Melakah means sent to work. So the idea here, for six days, work may be done. In essence, we would say for six days you can go to work. You can go to the mill, you know. You can go work the laundry. You can go work in the lawyer's office, whatever your job is. Go work the fields. You can be sent to work. Because the idea of Sabbath is not that you stop all movement and be still as a stone. The idea of Sabbath was take the day, stay home, be with me, the Lord would say. So Malachah sent to work. The word that has the same exact root in the Hebrew, malak. Malachah, sent to work. Malach means messenger or sent one and throughout the Hebrew scriptures it refers to Jesus every single time you see the phrase the angel of the Lord the Malach Yahweh the messenger of God the one sent to work Malachah is the messenger Malach John chapter 5 verse 16 says the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Jesus was doing 
what he was sent to do. Malachi, he was sent to do the work. The only one who could do the work. And Jesus worked all the way up to Calvary's cross where he said in John 19, 30, it is finished. The work was done. I am working, he said. But at Calvary, it is done. Jesus is the Malach Yahweh, sent one of God, who was sent to the work, the Malachah, so that we could enter his rest. It's perfect. It's remarkable to me the way scripture comes alive when we begin to understand and think about things in terms of Jesus. Right, Andy? We were talking about this earlier. Don't ever forget, if you don't understand scripture, ask, what does this tell you of Jesus? And you will find understanding because the whole thing points to and directs us to him. Hebrews chapter four, verse 10 says, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. We enter into his rest. That is the rest of the Malach who did the Malachah, who was sent to work that we might have rest. Are you weary tonight? Are you just kind of worn down feeling like, man, I could use a couple years off from this life. Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So every seventh day was Shabbat. Interesting, by the way, I also personally believe that Bible prophecy indicates that the seventh millennia of earth will be the kingdom. And if that's how this all plays out, six millennia since creation, according to biblical standard, we come to the seventh. And if indeed that is the millennial kingdom, it makes perfect sense because it will be a kingdom that will be basically a Shabbat Shabbaton for a thousand years. A Sabbath of complete rest in Jesus Christ. Now I mention that because in keeping with the prophecy updates we've been doing, the whole rest of the chapter is prophetic. Every feast prophetic in its meaning, and in more ways than one. So watch this. Picking up now, where are we? Verse 4, in the spring. In the spring, and I'll, I'll say one more thing. These feasts, what is so compelling about the spring feasts is they are all prophetic, were prophetic, given to Moses at his time, of the coming Messiah. All prophetic of Jesus and have all been fulfilled by Jesus. And you Bible students know that. The four feasts in the spring were all fulfilled precisely by Jesus and in his work. And we'll see how. That being the case, the fall feasts, well, it is not unreasonable to, be, to believe that they will be fulfilled precisely just as the spring feasts were. So verse 4, these are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. Verse five, in the first month, that's Nisan, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Pesach, Passover. So we come to Passover. Twilight, by the way, is between the two evenings. Between the two evenings, that whole time is considered Passover, which is how Jesus could both celebrate the last Passover, the last supper, and be the Passover lamb because it both happened between the two evenings. So he got to do both, celebrate it and then be the Passover. So amazing. Sabbath is rest, as I said before, but with the first feast, Passover, comes redemption. 
redemption. A spotless little lamb would be chosen by a family. They would choose that, that lamb on the 10th day of the month, so Nisan the 10th, and they would keep the lamb until the 14th day of Nisan. So for four days, that family would take the little lamb in, into the house, care for it, treat it like a pet. The kids would love on it and play with it and have all kinds of fun with it. And four days later, it became the sacrifice. And I think because God intended for his people to feel this, to have some sense of the serious nature of that Passover lamb. Interesting, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Nisan the 10th. He was the spotless lamb. He was inspected. He was questioned. He was found perfect throughout all that week. And on the 14th, Jesus was slain. It's also interesting to me is taking that same four-day period and thinking about that, again, by biblical reckoning from creation to Christ was 4,000 years. 4,000 years. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord, one day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is like one day. Four days from the Passover lamb being brought in to the Passover lamb being slain. 4,000 years? That would kind of explain how Jesus can be, Revelation 13, 8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. For just as the lamb was brought in with the intention of slaying it, four days later, Jesus was the lamb slain at creation from the foundation with the full intention that he would be, in fact, slain 4,000 years later as it happened. The Bible talks about Jesus that he is, not just he was, but he is the lamb slain. Because Passover both commemorated and it anticipated redemption. Prophetic because it looks ahead remarkably to Jesus. And we've already talked through Passover back in Exodus chapter 12. If you were with us and studied those things, you saw Passover. And we thought this through and it's been talked about many times since. That, that commemoration that looks back to the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel in Egypt. And then there, the Lord passing over his people and the people then were redeemed by the Lord and brought out of Egypt. And to this day, they still do this. But Passover also looked forward, commemorating that lamb, celebrated by the Jewish people over the years, and yet looking forward to the Passover, Christ, our Passover at the appointed time, the Moedah of God, that is Nisan, the, the 14th, A.D. 32, if our reckoning is correct there, prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. Jesus, the Lamb of the world. John the Baptist called him that. He's the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us we were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And ultimately, we will join in the worship in heaven, singing with the redeemed, Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. Do you all remember what the, the Greek word is for lamb? Maybe that's an obscure question. It's arnion, and it literally means the little lamb. Jesus Christ, the little lamb 
slain. So Jesus is both our Shabbat Shabbaton, he's our complete rest, and with the first feast, he is our Passover redemption. Verse 6, then on the 15th day of the same month, there is, here's the second feast, the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. That's, that's your Shabbat, Shabbaton, a special day to the Lord. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. And that brings us to the second feast of unleavened bread or Chag Hamatzot. Matzot, you hear that? Matzah. That's the matzah bread that we'll have for communion, although I'm really getting tired of those little styrofoam discs. I'm ready to get back to some actual matzah. I used to think the other matzah bread was kind of dull to eat. Anyway, that's just me. Feast of unleavened bread, eaten every day. The, The Sabbath rest, the Passover redemption. Well, unleavened bread, my friends, is about removal. Remove the leaven. Get the sin out. And it portrays prophetically the burial of Jesus. For on that day, as unleavened bread began, his body was in the tomb. And that burial of Jesus portraying for us the removal of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul said, clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. The sacrifice of Jesus and into the tomb he goes, which took all of our sin away, removed it from us, and as it were, buried it in the grave, never to have hold on us again. The body of Jesus. The body of Jesus there in the grave not only fulfilled Hag Hamatzot, but the whole picture Hag Hamatzot anticipated his resurrection. As David wrote in Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, which by the way, the path of life, it runs right through the empty tomb. You want life, you gotta go through the tomb. You gotta go through the Christ. And he says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread is one of those three pilgrimage feasts I mentioned. You have to come to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, to celebrate Hag Hamatzot. Well, why not Passover? Well, because they're already there for Hag Hamatzot. They're going to celebrate Passover and Hag Hamatzot and Reshit all together. So that was one of the times per year they were called to go up to Jerusalem, every male in Israel. Consequently, because the males can't live by themselves, their entire families came with them. So, you know, everybody went up together. It does remind me, and I want to give this little warning about going on a tour to Israel. If you're thinking about going with us in March of 2022, you get on the airplane, it's a long flight. Long flight, one, one length of the flight is about 11 hours, another length is about six hours or so. So it's, it's a long time in the airplane. You fly all the way across the Atlantic, all the way across the Mediterranean. And then when you get in, you're on your feet and you're going, you're in the bus, you're traveling up and down the length and the breadth of the Holy Land. It is a full and it is a packed tour. And here's the thing, you end the tour 
at an empty tomb. It's remarkable. People line up to go inside an empty tomb. There's nothing there. No one's in there. For all that, you go into this empty tomb. Now, you would think on any other tour, that'd be a bit disappointing, but not in the least. Romans 9, 38, Paul said, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And it's so fun to sit back because we go to a place called the garden tomb. There are different thoughts and theories about where the tomb may be. The thing is, we don't know because they've never been able to find a body. So, you know, we go to the garden tomb, and I think there's, there's a lot of interesting implication for that location. But it's so fun to sit back and to watch people go in. And they will. They'll line up to go in this big, empty stone tomb. And invariably, people go in, and they'll look around, and they come out with a big smile on their face. They are not disappointed or bummed out. Man, I just was hoping I'd see something, you know, the Shroud of Turan or something. No disappointment whatsoever. Because he who believes in him will not be disappointed. By the way, when Paul quoted that, that behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that is right out of Psalm 118, which there's very good evidence to think that's the hymn that Jesus and the apostles sang on Passover in Matthew 26, verse 30, Psalm 118. It's a favorite to sing for Passover among the Jewish people in antiquity. So, Passover, the first feast, Pesach, and then the very next day, unleavened bread, Hag Hamatzot, back to back, often considered as one feast. And you get to experience it. And I will keep it, both of these feasts, in the kingdom. They will be reinstated. It's fascinating to think about this. The feasts of Israel, reinstated with, with all the sacrifices and everything else, read Ezekiel. Check out his teaching all the way, Ezekiel 40 through 48, and listen to the description of the kingdom and Jerusalem in the kingdom and what will take place with Jesus on the throne in the kingdom. It's remarkable. Ezekiel 45, 21 says, in the first, first month, on the 14th day of the month, Nisan, you shall have the Passover. A feast of seven days, the unleavened bread shall be eaten. Now, why in the world will we do that in the kingdom? For crying out loud, the Passover pointed forward to Jesus. Well, in the kingdom, it's going to point backward to Jesus. Even as we take communion together on Sundays and Wednesdays now, we do so looking back. We also do so looking forward to uh, proclaiming his death until he comes. But in the kingdom, these feasts will be reinstated and experienced in the world. And that experience will focus again on the sacrifices of Jesus prior to the kingdom that led us all into the kingdom. Interesting. He describes, Ezekiel describes seven bulls and seven rams sacrificed each for seven days because, again, Passover will commemorate the redemption blood-bought by Jesus. Unleavened bread, we will keep that commemorating the removal of our sin, again, by the blood of Christ. Not just our removal from Egypt or the Jewish removal from Egypt, but the removal of sin from the world. These feasts are incredibly significant. So, so again, weekly Sabbath rest, and then the Passover redemption, and then unleavened 
removal. Verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. First fruits there is reshit. Reshit. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Okay, hold on right there just for a second. If you're tracking these, jot this down. The third feast is first fruits, reshit. And as Passover is redemption and unleavened bread portrays removal, we can say that reshit is reaping, reaping. He even says on the when you reap its harvest. So it's the reaping of the harvest. If you want to find another word that starts with R, go with resurrection. Because reshit portrays the resurrection on the morning of first fruits. The first day of the week after Passover and Hag Hamatzot, there was a holy reaping. On that morning of the Feast of Fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. On the exact day, that's amazing to me. Perfect timing. Why? Because God doesn't miss an appointment. These are his appointed days. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, first fruits. And it portrays and it spoke prophetically of the resurrection of Jesus. But it, it goes beyond that. It continues to speak prophetically. Watch this, verse 12. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine. That's a little less than a binny hen, so you can measure that out. Verse 14, until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. So until they brought these sacrificial offerings, they could not eat of the first fruits of the harvest. That is, God got the first, and then they could enjoy. Kind of the idea behind tithing, by the way, is giving God the first and then enjoying all of his bountiful blessing after that. It's, it's a faith thing and it will strengthen your faith. But note, note that the offerings that are given here, it's interesting, burnt offering, verse 12, grain offering, verse 13, and then drink offering also in verse 13. Do you note offerings that are missing here? There's no guilt offering. You don't offer a guilt offering on Rashid, first fruits. You don't offer sin offerings on first fruits. Because first fruits not only anticipated the resurrection of a sinless Jesus Christ, it also anticipates our resurrection. The resurrection of the rest of the fruits. <laughs> yes, I just called you fruits. We're all the fruits of God. Christ, the first fruits, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, and then those who are his at his coming. 
So the whole rest of the fruit basket, our resurrection is anticipated by the feast of first fruits. So it is still speaking prophetically, though fulfilled by Jesus, who is the first fruits. John eleven twenty five. I love how Jesus says this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's the dead in Christ. And then he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, that's those who are alive at his coming. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? I hear that verse and I hear Jesus say, do you? Rick, do you believe this? And it convicts me every time that I must continue to believe. I do continue to believe that the dead in Christ and those alive at his coming will all together be resurrected by Jesus, the first fruits, the resurrection, and the life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, Rashid. And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So God sets up a feast to prophetically indicate the resurrection of Jesus and then all those who would follow after him. Oh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I love it. Verse 15. He says, next feast, you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Shabbat, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. The fourth and final spring feast now, following exactly 50 days later, seven Sabbaths plus one day, is the Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks, or in Hebrew, Shavuot. So we come to Shavuot, and Shavuot is a picture, listen, of reception. Reception. Shavuot, you know what it's called in Greek, right? Anyone want to venture a guess? Pentecost. It is the day of Pentecost, the celebration of Shavuot. The birthday of the church, the day when we began to receive the Holy Spirit wholesale on the entire church. So Shavuot is reception, a holy, divine, wonderful reception. And let me just read you a little bit about that first, that first Shavuot Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, which says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And I suggest to you the whole house was the temple, that the temple was referred to as the house, that it wasn't necessarily simply an upper room. It could have been, and the rushing wind could have filled the upper room. We go to this upper room that is suggested by tradition to be the upper room that they may have been in. And we go to that in Jerusalem. The problem is the upper room could not possibly contain all the people mentioned here in this story. So either they were in that room and it filled like a rushing wind and they came outside or they were in a different house, the house of the Lord, the temple. 
And it says, this violent rushing wind filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Talk about reception. They were tuned in perfectly on that day to receive of the Spirit of the Lord. It's remarkable. Skipping on down to verse 14. There, some were saying they're drunk, they're full of sweet wine. And Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. And then, in a way only Peter can say it, he says, It's only the third hour of the day. <laughs> what are you saying, Peter? That if this had happened like at 7 p.m., they would have possibly been drunk. You know, it's funny the way he says that to me. They're not drunk. It's only the third hour, hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Amazing. As far back as 200 AD, some rabbis did some math. And, and they realized that this celebration that was on God's divine calendar of Shavuot, trying to find meaning for it, again, 200 years after Pentecost and the church was born, these rabbis said, well, wait a minute. This, this follows that it's right around the time they would have been receiving the law at Mount Sinai. If you go from Passover and leaving Egypt and then travel down to Mount Sinai, that right around that time, they'd be receiving the law. And so Jews to this very day still consider Shavuot to be the birthday of Judaism. That's, that's what is celebrated. The, the giving of the law. The receiving of the law there from Mount Sinai. And the parallels are fascinating. Although, I got to tell you, the, the reception at Mount Sinai on the day that the law was brought down by Moses was not exactly cake and balloons, if you're thinking in terms of a birthday. Y'all may recall, Exodus chapter 32, verse 28 says, On that day, 3,000 Israelites died in their rebellion by the blood-soaked sword of Levi. 3,000 died, not the greatest birthday party. By contrast, what happened at Shavuot, A.D. 32? They said, brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Peter said, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Reception. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And those who received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 died, the birthday of Judaism and the giving of the law. 3,000 were saved on the birthday of the church. So whose birthday is it really? Is it the birthday of Israel? Is that why God said, I want you to keep Shavuot? Or is it because of Pentecost, Shavuot, the birthday of the church? What's the focus? You got to get this. Don't miss this. Verse 17. 
You shall bring in, this is all part of Shavuot, from your dwelling places, two loaves of bread for a wave offering. Made of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour <laughs> baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So here's what you do to celebrate. You bring in two loaves for a wave offering. That is, they're going to wave it up before the Lord. Two loaves. Today, even today, rabbinical scholars say the two loaves represent the two tablets of the law. That makes sense to some degree. Two loaves, two tablets, wave them before the Lord, the giving of the law. There's some parallels there. We can see that. Exodus 31, 18. When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So the rabbis say, two loaves, two tablets. That's got to be it, right? Oh, don't go so quick. Because we're told that these two loaves are to be baked with leaven. Psalm 19.7 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. God would not bake in sin to something that represented his perfect law. So they were to bring two loaves with sin baked in. So what are these two loaves? Well, the picture starts to open up. Verse 18, watch this, along with the bread. You shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer a male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a one-year-old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with the two lambs before the Lord, and they are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. So that's holy food that the priest gets to take home and eat. Check it out. Two loaves for the wave offering. But with the loaves, they had to bring the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and finally the peace offerings. Why? I suggest to you the two loaves represented the two peoples who make up the church, Jew and Gentile. Jews and Gentiles. In the entire history of the world, prior to 2,000 years ago, there were only two kinds of people, as far as God was concerned, two kinds of people on earth. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Now there are three. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And there's the church. And the church, and, and I say this with no haughtiness or arrogance, oh, the church, hey, the church is here by the work, the blood work of Christ. The church is made up of anyone, arms wide open, anyone who believes in Jesus, which is Jew and Gentile alike. And why do they have to have all these offerings, including the sin and the guilt offering? Because the sin is baked in. We come to Jesus with sin. We are sinful in our Gentile state and they are sinful in their Jewish state, but through Jesus we come together, the two loaves and the offering is made by Christ perfectly at the cross. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, Romans 1.16. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Two sin-soaked loaves filled with leaven, sacrifices given, and they are waved before the Lord as an offering. And when was that? On Shavuot, Pentecost, 
birthday of the church. And note that the very last offering that is given on this day, verse 19, is a sacrifice of peace offerings. It's perfect. He himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which was the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death, by having put to death the enmity. It's so marvelous. You realize the church does not stand in opposition to Israel. The church stands with open arms to Jew and Gentile alike because we were received with open arms. And then in verse 21, on this same day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, another Shabbat Shabbaton. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations because, because when we receive the work, there's nothing to do but rest. And we find our rest in him. Verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And there it is again. Even for those alien to Israel, there is an invitation. Alien, the foreigner, the outsider, the Gentile. You are to leave the gleanings of the field. Go ahead and collect it all, but leave the gleanings, the stuff that falls off, the stuff that's on the outskirts. Don't go all the way to the edge. Leave some there so that those who are poor among you can eat and those who are foreigners passing through can eat and be fed as well. I love that this is what is discussed by the Lord during Shavuot, which is the church, which is God's open arms to everyone. And what's really cool to me is this established a prophetic precedent for a little Moabite girl who would glean in the fields of Israel, meeting and marrying a man named Boaz in one of his fields, becoming the Gentile great-grandmother of David, Ruth. And so God, right here in Leviticus 23, 22, set a precedent so that Ruth, the Moabite Gentile outsider, could be written into the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. God doesn't miss a thing, and he certainly does not miss a single appointment. Now, we could stop right there, but we're not gonna. There are four spring feasts that we've just covered. Four spring feasts, each one literally and explicitly fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, and yet still, at some level, pointing to the second coming of Jesus. But each of these four, he fulfilled on the day of the feast, precisely. God kept his appointments. Now, there's a span of time between the spring feasts and then you go through kind of the long late spring, early summer until finally you come around to the fall and arrive at the fall feasts. And I find that interesting because there's been a long span since the fulfillment of the first coming of Jesus, the spring feasts, until the second coming of Jesus, which is what all the feasts speak about in the fall. And what happens between them? Think about this. The spring feast, the four, and then there are three more that take place in the fall. And a span of time in between, Jesus said, learn the parable of the fig tree. 
Because in between the spring and in between the fall, what happens in the summer? The fig tree begins to put forth its leaves. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, as we've talked about real recently here, the fig tree portraying Israel coming back into its own as a nation. And so if we overlay these feasts across history and we see in the first century the fulfillment of Jesus and then this long span of time, but, but the fig tree, the fig tree's growing. The spring feasts are about to come. Check them out. Or, sorry, the fall feasts. The fall feasts are about to come. Verse 23. Here's the first of the fall feasts and it's the fifth of the seven Verse 23, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first of the month you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing a holy convocation of trumpets in italics there isn't there in the Hebrew but it's implied, it's a blowing but it's a blowing of the ram's horn. You shall not do any laborious work but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. This is the feast that's called Yom Teruah. Day of blowing. That's what Yom Teruah means. A day of blowing. And again, the implication is the shofar, the ram's horn. But listen, I don't have to say a whole lot about this feast because we've talked about it a lot. Yom Teruah. The Jews today call it Rosh Hashanah. That's the head of the new year. But it wasn't originally that new year celebration. That wasn't the point. God's new year starts in Nisan, not in Tishri. God's new year is the beginning of the spring, not in the fall. But the Jewish civic new year starts with Tishri the first, and so they've turned Yom Teruah into Rosh Hashanah. But it was originally Yom Teruah. Here's the thing. Of the seven feasts, this one is so enigmatic. So, what does it mean? What's it for? What, what's the connection I mean, there's no connection of this feast, of the other six. They all have a specific connection to Jewish cultural and social life. They all fit into the history of Israel. They have something to do with the Jewish people and what happened to the Jewish people, fulfilled by Jesus with the Jewish people. But you come to this one, and it's mysterious, and it's unexplained. There's no reason given for it. Yom Teruah, have a day where you toot the horn. Okay, why? He doesn't tell him. He never explains this one. It just kind of sits out there as this baffling feast to pull out a shofar and blow Yom Teruah. And it's one of the seven appointed times of God. These are my appointments, he says. Times that I will keep. So you read it and you go, well, okay, Lord, I'm looking at these things. What reason could there possibly be for the day of blowing? I mean, is this just a day for God to toot his own horn? No. Oh, he will. He will toot his own horn for the trump will sound. And what I'm getting at here is the only reason that I can find in all of Scripture for this feast to be among the seven is it's God's profound insinuation of the rapture. It's the rapture of the church. Yom Teruah speaks then of the rapture, this fall feast. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. 
And it's so fascinating that Bible scholars and prophecy students, they look at this and they wonder if Yom Teruah on Tishri the first in the fall might perhaps be the day when Jesus calls us home. Wouldn't that be, I mean, just think of it in terms of the, of the seven feasts. The first four were all fulfilled on the day of the feast. And if Yom Teruah, which speaks of a trumpet blast, some reach back, they say, well, maybe it speaks of the first trumpet on Mount Sinai. The only problem is it's at the wrong time of year. If you're commemorating the trumpet blast on Mount Sinai, that should have been in the spring. Why is it in the fall? Completely different time. I think it speaks of the last trumpet. And the trumpet will sound. And Jesus will say, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, come up here. John hears a trumpet blast and then hears Jesus say, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. And John's in heaven, just as the church will be, transported in the twinkling of an eye. And so I do wonder, and I'm not putting this date down. I'm not saying Tishri the first is the day. But wouldn't it? There you go. <laughs> But wouldn't that be awesome if it was on Tishri the first? Don't plan for it, because I guarantee you, you plan for Tishri the first, which is this, I think it's September, I think it's early September this year, September 6th, perhaps. If you plan for that day, I guarantee you, he's going to surprise you and come early. Maybe you should go ahead and plan for that day. <laughs> So we don't know the day or the hour, and that's what people say. Oh, you prophecy people who say it's going to be on Tishri. Come on. We don't know the day or the hour. Jesus said that. Mark 13, 32, of that hour and of that day no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Here's the thing about Yom Teruah. Even the Jews, year to year to year, don't ever know the day or the hour. That's what they refer to the feast as sometimes, the feast if we don't know the day or the hour, because the trumpet is not to be blown until the priest sees the first sliver of the new moon. And until that is visible, they don't blow the trumpet. So they could blow the trumpet at 6 p.m. or they could blow the trumpet at 9 p.m. They don't know the hour. They could blow the trumpet at just after midnight. They don't know the hour. Remember for the Jewish person that the day begins in the evening and runs to the next evening. So Yom Teruah begins around 4, 35, 36 p.m., right around there, and runs all the way to the next night. The next night. So they, it could be either day. They don't know the day. They don't know the hour. It's perfect. So it could be on Tishri. I'm not saying it is. But interesting, after this trumpet sounds, this is where I said, and I actually wrote this in my Bible. You don't need to do this. But between verse 25 and 26, I wrote Yamim Noraim, which is days of awe. Because in Jewish tradition, now, after the trumpet is blown on Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, they enter into the ten awesome days. They hear the trumpet, and now it's time to get the heart ready. Now it's time for reflection and for, for repentance. And there's a mood change. Yom Teruah is a time of, of, of great celebration. Rosh Hashanah, even as a New Year celebration. Man, dip those apples in honey and celebrate with your family and friends. And it's a great time in Israel. But then they enter into the mood change from a trumpet to affliction. Yom Kippur. Ten days in between and then we come to the sixth day 
on the day of, on the feasts of the Lord, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which is a day of repentance, repentance. Verse 26, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you and you shall humble or literally afflict your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for the person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all because you cannot atone for yourselves. Note that. You are not to work on the day of atonement because you can't, because it would do you no good anyway. You shall do no work at all, verse 31. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls, afflict your souls. On the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Shabbat. The law of atonement. Now, we studied this in Leviticus 16 and rolling into Leviticus 17, the blood atonement and what the day of atonement looked like and what it meant. So I'm not going to go back over all that right now. But realize, prophetically speaking, the trumpet sounds. And then the Jews enter those awesome days, culminating in the day of atonement. After the blowing of the trumpet comes days of awe and affliction, and atonement, which is a picture, I believe, of the tribulation. Trumpet will sound first. And then the world will enter a time of tribulation. But it is a time of affliction, first and foremost, for Israel, for the Jewish people. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress. Or you might have read Jacob's trouble, or literally Jacob's affliction but he will be saved from it. And so we see this layout here, trumpet first, then affliction. Zechariah chapter 13, verse eight, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part in it will be left. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And about that same time, Jesus warned Israel, Matthew 24, verse nine, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness has increased. Most lo people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And let me just underscore this for you. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel will be preached in the whole, whole world and then the end will come because the gospel is going to continue to be preached in the tribulation through that time of affliction. 
The gospel will be preached. 144,000 Jewish evangelists, uh, two witnesses preaching out of Jerusalem and prophesying with amazing signs, looking a lot like Moses and Elijah. And then you've got an angel flying in the mid-heaven saying, repent. The gospel will continue to be preached even after the trumpet sounds and we are out of here. And I've shared before, I love what J. Vernon McGee intimates. He says, I think it's possible that more people are going to be saved at that time than by any evangelistic campaign of the church across 2,000 years. Which reminds me that God doesn't need us to accomplish his work. He just invites us to come along for the ride. That's how we get to rest while he does the work. We rest in him. He does it. He makes it happen. Well, after the final fulfillment of all God's divine appointments, then the end will come. We began with the weekly Shabbat, Sabbath rest. Again, implicit in Jesus himself and in all of the feasts. And then the annual appointments of God, as we looked at, four in the spring, prophesying his first coming, Passover, speaking of redemption in the crucifixion of Christ, unleavened bread, speaking of the removal of sin and the burial of Christ, first fruits, speaking of the resurrection, we call that the reaping, uh, Pentecost, Shavuot, speaking of the church, our reception, and all of those prophecy fulfilled. Three feasts in the fall, all prophetic of the second coming. Yom Teruah, the rapture of the church. Yom Kippur, the, the amazing repentance of Israel. And then there's one more feast, number seven on the list, the last one, and it is an appointment overflowing with joyful prophetic anticipation, and we're going to save it for Sunday morning. So come back and listen to it then. There's an appointed time. For everything, Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is a time for every event under heaven. But listen to me, Jesus never carried a smartphone. Jesus does not rely on calendar alerts or reminders or sticky notes. You know, you, you never would have found even a little piece of string tied around his finger. He didn't need those mnemonic devices because Jesus never misses an appointment. When he sets an appointment, he never forgets an appointment. He always shows up right on time. Why? Because these appointments are his. Back in verse 2 of chapter 23, he says, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. My appointed times, God says. Note this, these are not the feasts of Israel. These are the feasts of Yahweh. These are the feasts of Jesus. These are his appointed times. And they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or a Shabbat, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs Christ. Father, thank you for revealing these feasts. Thank you for setting these things in Torah law 3,500 years ago to Moses and the people of Israel. Thank you, Lord, that you have been so intentional to show us Jesus even in your appointed feast days. Thank you, Father, for the fulfillment that we 
can even talk about now looking back at the spring feast. And Lord, we want to thank you ahead of time because we cannot wait for the fulfillment of the fall feasts. We want to see all these things happen. And Lord, we long for you to come and make it so. Until then, I pray, Lord Jesus, help us to see you in the scroll of the book. May we understand and recognize that the scriptures are not searched because in them we think we have life, but it is these that testify, Lord Jesus, of you. So we thank you, we worship you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.